0: What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So, why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out the easiest choice for you. Learn more at slash papertarian.
0: Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott. I'm Ben, as always, we are joined by our super producer, uh, Noel Maple Syrup Brown. <laughs> Maple Syrup. <but laughs> I'm reaching on that yeah, one.
3: Yeah, I guess so. Maybe, maybe, uh, boy, I'm going to have to, I mean, there's the obvious one, but sure. Let's, let's hold off on that. Okay. And then, uh, maybe as we go through, as we, we sometimes as do, as we are want to Yeah, do. maybe there'll be something along the way that we can, uh, we can bring up here.
2: Well, how about Iroquois? Ooh, that's cool. Little Iroquois Brown. Now I hope we
3: mention that. I mean, we forget to mention that part of the whole story.
2: Yeah, we're, uh, we're, we're 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 not going to paint ourselves in the corner here, Scott. We'll get to it. We have to now. (laughs) We owe it to you. You're also here. Uh, you're the listener. Hopefully you're still you and, uh, and hopefully still listening after that intro. Hopefully still listening after that intro. Uh, so we would like to start today's episode with a couple pieces of listener mail.
3: Oh yeah, that's right. We've got, um, uh, I guess, backed by popular demand, um, is Clayton with his uh, with his car reviews. Now Clayton is, uh, as you recall, now I think, I think the story's changed a little bit here, and I, and I believe I've mentioned this too. Clayton is a uh, is a, a welder mm-hmm. by profession. Uh, in his off time, he would uh, he, he would test vehicles for manufacturers. He would drive and test vehicles. So he drove a lot of vehicles. I think now he has uh, sort of given up on the welding thing and is going back to school to become a teacher. Oh, cool. So uh he's attending university at this point and uh and I'm not going to go much more in into depth on that but he's uh, still testing vehicles which is good news for us because he likes to write in with uh with well we ask him to write in mm-hmm. with um brutally honest reviews. Yeah, quick ones too. Like nothing yeah. nothing too lengthy but uh, before we get to just a few more of those he sent in about five or six of these um mm-hmm. you know a couple little bonus things as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he has a question in a separate email that was a, what I thought was a pretty good question and one that maybe some of our listeners have had along the way as well. No, right. So here it is. It's a, it's a truck question. I thought it was a really good question from him. Uh, he says, uh, speaking of trucks, and we were talking about his uh, 99 Ford Ranger that he drives, right, yeah. uh, one of one of two that he owns, uh, different types of vehicles. He says, there's something that I've been curious about. The four most common pickup trucks in South Texas, and that's critical that he lives in South Texas, mm-hmm. Is the Ford F one hundred and fifty, the Toyota Tundra, the Chevy Silverado, and the Ram fifteen hundred, and all have either some kind of Texas edition or a Lone Star edition, something like that. You know, something similar. Right, right. He wanted to know if, in uh, by region, there was something similar, like if we had a, uh, <laughs> like a. a uh, an F 150 Georgia edition or a Silverado Peach edition, you know, something sure, like that. Yeah. And uh, that's a, probably a question that a lot of our listeners have. You know? Right. Like, would an Alaskan
2: pickup truck have a Klondike edition?
3: Yeah, exactly. And, well, I don't know if there is a certain, like, a Klondike edition, because that sounds like it could be something. Yeah. Now that I think about it. Yeah. But there is no uh, Silverado Peach edition, thankfully. And uh, I think the reason that this works so well for Texas is because, well, people simply like the names that are associated with that. And there's, like, the King. Ranches down there, so mm-hmm. it makes sense to have a King Ranch edition. And, and I don't know if maybe maybe they ordered so many trucks for the King Ranch that uh, you know it, it uh, necessitated them getting their own branding on a truck, you know, from Ford. Oh yeah. Uh, but it, it's interesting, you know, like the, the name of the uh, the Lone Star edition or you know something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but it it makes sense that Texas and trucks are tied together. And I think that is just something that everybody across the United States, across around the world, really recognizes.
2: Yeah, and that's and that's
3: why. Now I did look, kind of halfway dig into. Um special editions for, for regions or events or things like that. I couldn't find a whole lot, but I found this. This is kind of strange. Cleveland, like is in Cleveland, Ohio, had a special edition cutlass in the nineteen seventies. It was the nineteen seventy seven Oldsmobile Cutlass S Coupe G C S X and the G C S X stood for Greater Cleveland Special Edition. Huh. Isn't that weird? I did not see I, that coming. I don't know how many of those were made or anything like that, but uh, there's a lot of like special edition cars that may or may not have a name associated with them, like the Klondike, like you mentioned. Sure. But um, lots of that going going on. I don't know if there's enough for a full episode or not. We'll have to kind of dig into
2: that. And we'll hear from you, hopefully, right in and let us know if there's a special edition vehicle in your neck of the woods. Yeah, like a
3: regional thing or a uh-huh. state thing or whatever it happens to be. But those are those are somewhat unique to texas mm-hmm. all right so let's get on to the uh, the reviews he said he's got a lot of them actually that he's kind of holding on to but he can't really say anything about yet publicly right
2: because he is uh he is testing some pre-release cars
3: yeah and he says you know until they make the press announcements you know one way or another he can't say whether he likes or does not like something until that that is made public so it's mm-hmm. kind of like an embargo on this stuff yeah all right so here are the ones that he could could do and i'll go through these quickly Uh, Most of them get good or kind of like a 50-50 review. There's nothing really bad in this one. Oh, okay. But he's holding on to a couple that are just... Miserably bad, but he can't say what they are yet. All right, so the 2016 Ford Flex, better than I initially thought it would be. It would be feels more like driving a tall station wagon than an SUV. It has a lot of room inside and is good for long distance drives. So that's a good one. Now one that's kind of 50/50 about is the 2016 Honda CRV all wheel drive. He says it's actually a lot of fun to drive. It corners exceedingly well for a small SUV, Mm -hmm. uh, but it can feel a little cramped inside and it can also feel a bit sluggish on the hills. So again, kind of half half on that, halfway. You know, 50 on that mm-hmm. one. Um, here's another. Hey, this is a scooter, I think. A bit like a bigger scooter. Uh-huh. The 2016 Suzuki Bergman 650. And he says, I should say that since I don't have a motorcycle license, I wasn't able to actually road test this one. Uh, but he was uh, he was on his way back uh, when uh, someone asked him if he could run, you know, like run these vehicles back and forth to fill them up, fill up the gas tanks mm-hmm. uh, for whoever would be taking them out. And he said that his... You know, driving of these eight vehicles that they have was like a quarter mile each, so you can't really give a good review of it. But mm-hmm. he said it was more comfortable uh, more comfortable than he thought it would be, had more storage room than he he would have thought possible, um, you know, under the seat, I think. You can put your helmet and maybe a grocery bag or something like that, uh, like maybe two grocery bags, he says. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said there's actually a decent-sized, you know, glove compartment there. So he says it's really, really easy to use, just kind of like a, a twist-and-go thing on the mm-hmm. throttle. Very simple. A... Hey, uh, 2016, uh, let's see, the 2016 Jeep Wrangler Unlimited seems like it would be lots of fun off road, but he didn't get the chance to do that because these ah, are manufacturer tests. Yeah. It's not really like the Rubicon Trail test or anything, right? That uh, the the uh, you know the creator would do, the manufacturer. Uh, but he says I also regret the chance of not getting to drive it without the roof and the doors, which a lot of people like to do. Sure. Um, so the road noise is not nearly as bad as I would have thought it would be. Uh, the only real downside is that the black hardtop uh, really soaks up the heat from the South Texas sun. So, again, that's a regional thing, yeah. I guess, wherever you are. But everybody gets, at some point, direct sunlight. Mm-hmm. I know South Texas is ex- an extreme version of that, but um, <laughs> uh, I would assume AC would handle that as well. And that's something that he mentions mm-hmm. in the next one, which is the 2016 Mahindra 3540. And he says the glass cab can act like a greenhouse, um even on a moderately warm day. Fortunately, the air conditioner takes care of that, and the hydrostatic transmission makes things almost foolproof. Now, the Mahindra, that's like a uh, a front-loader tractor-type vehicle, Mm -hmm. and uh, apparently the one that he was in has kind of a a glass canopy over it, so uh, something... Kind of unique. Yeah, and it's almost like when he wrote in about the airport tug that he got to drive for you know oh, a yeah. short, short distance. That's but cool. Yeah, it must be just kind of like a, a lot vehicle there. You know, something uh-huh. something fun. Um, and he says since I only have a couple of them this time around, you know, five or so, he wrote in about his first car, which is a 1989 Eagle Premier LX, and he said it was uh, an extremely smooth ride, bordering on bordering on bouncy. Which mm-hmm. is uh, it's not really that good for a sports car. And yeah. I don't know if it's really a sports car though. Yeah, Premier LX. no I guess not. Um, the electric system is best described as unpredictable, and <laughs> and it costs a fortune to fix anything on that car. Uh, now his current vehicle, so we mentioned the Ford Ranger, seventeen. He's had it for seventeen years and uh, uh, two thousand, or I'm sorry, two hundred and ten thousand miles, and he says still going strong. It's a four cylinder version though, mm. and feels like it's underpowered when it's fully loaded. Uh, he says anything that breaks, however, is easy and inexpensive to fix, so that's good. And last one is. A 2007 Toyota Sequoia. Uh, lots of leg room inside, or just lots of room inside. Great for pulling a medium-sized camper on long trips, and he's used it on several cross-country cross-country trips, and he doesn't have any complaints at all about that one. So that's thank you, one. Clayton, for sending those in. I know people, it's funny, it, those are so simple and, and concise, just right to the point. I think that's what people like about them. That, that yeah. Just straight to it. It's like, I like it for this reason, I don't like it for that. On to the next one.
2: Yeah. Absolutely, I like seeing, I like hearing about the different vehicles all at once, all yeah. in one go. You know?
3: I do too. Yeah, instead of having like a full article that focuses on one vehicle, or um you know, maybe, well, you and I, we don't get a, we don't get to drive a lot of vehicles, really. We get to drive our own vehicles, maybe our parents' vehicles, you know, uh, you know, girlfriends, wives, whatever, you know, that, those vehicles. But that's it.
2: I was in that joyriding ring for a while.
3: <laughs> Is <that> right. Yeah. <laughs> a little Grand Theft Auto, maybe. Our
2: man on the inside was a valet. <laughs>
3: You know that's quite a scam. I I uh, boy there was a and and it really happened. There wasn't a it wasn't a legend but uh you know we hear about this a lot downtown in Buckhead. Uh there was a uh, Lamborghini that was taken from a lot uh, right outside of our office. It wasn't very far away. It was wow. at a, at a, a hotel. Uh-huh. Uh, they normally park the cars in a, in a circle out front, you know, kind of on sh- on show, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they have they do have a, a big parking structure in the back. But uh, there was a situation where I think uh, someone, someone – I think the deal was – I'll have to look it up again. But I think there was someone on the inside that handed the keys off to somebody after it pulled in, which is wow.
2: crazy. Yeah. I wonder how – I wonder if they got away with it. I, I don't know. I never really – I mean, I wonder if the mole got caught. That's what I'm oh, saying. Oh,
3: I doubt it. I, no, I'm sorry. I bet the mole did – I don't know about the, uh, the the actual car thief, or if it was returned or anything like that. But uh, I mean, even, how
2: would you sell? I don't
3: know a car like that. I, I don't know. I mean, that happens when people steal like show cars or right. um, you know motorcycles that are that are distinctly unique in some way. You know, like uh, there's something that somebody could easily point to and say that's yeah, maybe it's just parts. You know, because otherwise you're going to know exactly whose bike that is. It's a it's a tight knit community, right? More tight knit than, than you would think That's when you what, own a car exactly. like that or a bike like that. So I don't know. It's a it's a strange thing. I, I just don't get theft all around. Really, I don't. I don't understand the
2: whole thought process there. Hmm. It's kind of strange. You don't you don't get theft all around. Yeah. <laughs> you're not against a, it. You just don't get it. I, I just don't. Get, I don't get it. I don't understand
3: why uh, why somebody would do something like that. I, I, it's a. Uh, I know it's a moral question Sure, issue, but um yeah i just don't understand
2: i'm sure there are just a few there are a few people who do it uh for the thrill right isn't that why some people like shoplift and stuff just because there's some adrenaline based reaction sure yeah i'm sure that's it that's it's got to be it because i remember i heard of I, I remember hearing stories in the news that would pop up every so often about you know very wealthy people or even celebrities who would steal uh just because they enjoyed stealing. Yeah. So morally, they would be the opposite of you, because they feel like they really get it.
3: <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. S- <laughs> speaking <laughs> of like, getting like, to things... Polar opposites,
2: All right, right. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, speaking of getting to things, uh, today we are going to do an episode that is a long time in coming, and I want to read part of this uh, to you, Scott, and to you listeners and to you, Kelly, if you are out there still, because in... You think Kelly gave up? I don't know. I'm I'm uh, not completely sure, because almost a year ago, uh, in, let's see, in May of 2015, May 24th, 2015, mm-hmm. Kelly D. wrote in to reply to our U-Haul, podcast. Yeah. And then uh, PS said, I know you don't often venture into aviation, but if you were to do a podcast on the Avro Aero CF 105, it would make a great episode. This Canadian superjet was an amazing interceptor, but was canceled in 1959 on a day known as Black Friday in Canadian aviation history. Some scientists ended up working for NASA. Hmm. Now that I think about it, Maybe this is a story more for stuff they don't want you to know. Hmm, okay. So over time, we talked. Uh, Kelly and I spoke over the uh, I spoke over the internets, over the tubes, yep. and off the air before you and I had kicked around the idea of doing this. Yeah, that's right.
3: And uh, man, I don't know a year, Ben. That seems like a, that's kind of like an average wait time
2: for us yeah, that, I, recently that, that's not as bad for
3: us because we're we're getting just so many we get so many ideas that come in that are great and we, we try to comb through and sort through them and and uh man we've we've had some that have gone back what through the international episode oh, that yeah. three it was like three years okay yeah fair so yeah a year i mean sure that's a long time to wait but i think uh man well let's hope let's make it worth it how about that <laughs> let's yeah let's, let's do our the best. Old college drive we'll do our best all right so where do you want to start? You want to start with uh, maybe describing who is, uh, well, uh, who's Avro, really?
2: Who's yeah. Avro? Yeah, let's start Avro? there.
3: It's actually kind of a, uh, uh, the, 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 better known way to say, uh, the actual name of the company, really, it's, is Avro. Um, it's actually A.V. Rowe and Company. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that comes from the, uh, the founder. The founder's name was Elliot, Elliot with an A, Elliot Verdon Rowe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he's actually out of Manchester, England. And so it's not really it's not it didn't start out as a Canadian company, but i kind of, I'll kind of tell you what happened it It was founded in nineteen ten it's a of course a British aircraft manufacturer and uh the, they've got several designs you know along the way they've they've had uh, you know World War one planes they've had uh, planes that were well up into the jet era you know in the Cold uh-huh. War. And along the way, they made uh, monoplanes, you know, single-wing airplanes. Mm -hmm. They made biplanes, and they even made triplanes prior, prior to the First World War. So remember those kind of crazy designs where they had three wings yeah, um, World War One days. I mean, like pre-World War One. Like the even. ones that stacked like a club sandwich. Yeah, exactly. A oh, club club sandwich sounds pretty good. I didn't eat lunch yet. Yeah, me either. Most
2: of most of my comparisons <laughs> to things right now are going to be food related. I think my
3: stomach has already growled in this episode. So if you heard that, that's <laughs> what's going on. It's uh, it's it's after lunch. We're missing it. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So so anyways, it's a, a British manufacturer. It started back in 1910. And um, the, the company primarily remained a British-based company, but they then ventured out later, m- much later, actually, um, in, you know, I think it was around for about 53 years. So it, it was around, in, or in existence until about 1963. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until about 1945 that uh, when the company was actually, uh, they, they merged into another company called the Hawker Sidley Aircraft Company. And the Hawker Sidley Aircraft Company, uh, from about 1935 on, it was kind of like a, uh, um, well, it was a subsidiary of it, I guess. That's the best way to say it. And that is part of, that's the group that initiated Avro Canada. It was um, was this Hawker Sidley group who purchased the former Victory Aircraft firm in Malton, Ontario, and then renamed that operation AV Row Canada Limited. right.
2: So Victory Aircraft at the time was Canada's largest aircraft manufacturer. And there's an interesting, there's an interesting piece of history here because before about 1939 or so, before the late 30s, the Victory folks had been participating in the creation of UK aircraft In what they called Shadow Factories. Shadow Factories. That's a cool name, right? Yeah, it is. Sounds like the name of an electronic album or something. So, what's that all about? They wanted to produce these aircraft in safety, away from the possibility of attack or bombing.
3: Oh, okay. So, are they, I mean, are they literally producing these at night? Is that what's going on? They're working, and are, no, I'm being serious. Are they are they working uh, when they're not likely to be spotted? You know, during the daytime, if under surveillance or whatever, or is this something that is just uh, shadow is more of like a term like um, it's hidden from plain view? Maybe.
2: You know, I there's there are pictures about it. I, I, maybe they're called shadow factories because they were not officially at that time part of. Uh, A.V. Row? Yeah. Well, anyways, nighttime nighttime aircraft
3: building. I know it wouldn't be safe or anything, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you I've, were, heard of,
2: no, I've heard of crazier things happening. At first I thought you were messing with me, and I thought your next question would be, well, how did they design the shadows, right?
3: <laughs> no, no, and I, that was a legit question because um, that could mean a lot of things during wartime because, uh, you know, there's certain blackout periods, and right. I just didn't know exactly what that meant. So uh, interesting that they call them shadow factories. That's kind of cool. It's so, like, um, yeah almost like it sounds like kind of like a skunkworks thing almost where it's yeah. like special projects but
2: uh kind of hidden away not it sounds, the normal yeah it sounds way cooler than skunkworks Skunk skunkworks <laughs> Skunk has a feel to it for sure yeah. but also a smell <laughs> but uh okay so so we mentioned some of the aircraft design that Avro had done in its history right monoplane even triplane yeah and then it had another design which uh concerns us for the purposes of our episode today, there's a delta wing design. Yeah, delta
3: wing design. Now, that would be unique for, for them, uh, you know, that they're building something like that. But let, just before we move on too far past this, sure. and I know I'm throwing you a curveball here, but, um, the. Designs that Avro is, uh, I guess, related to or, or um, mm-hmm. associated with, maybe, maybe mm-hmm. um, include the Avro 504, which was used as a trainer in the First World War. Uh, there was the Avro Lancaster, which was one of the preeminent bombers during the Second World War, and then there was delta wing Avro Vulcan, uh, which was used in the Cold War. Now, before we got to the Vulcan, yes, before, before we got to the Vulcan, there was this Arrow. And the Arrow is, uh, is the focus of what we're talking about today, but there was another plane uh, prior to that, <laughs> which uh, which I think we need to mention, and that is the Avro Canada CF one hundred Canuck.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the CF one hundred Canuck, as you said, Scott, is a predecessor. Uh, it has a street name, by the way, just to give you an idea: the Clunk. The Clunk. Not a very
3: good, not a very good street name, really. Um, And that was that was in service between 1952 and 1981. So this uh, this spans the Cold War, uh, not entirely, but uh, almost. And uh, it's also a jet powered vehicle. Right, Um, it's a a aircraft rather. Um, And it was uh, it was actually successful. It did it did well. Mm -hmm. It's just it was getting dated even at that point. They wanted something a little better, a little more modern, something that was. Something similar to what Convair was doing yeah with, with yeah. their
2: F106. right. so it was also known as the lead sled, the Canuck or the clunk, uh, because it had a it had some difficulty with maneuverability. So as we know, in any kind of wartime or military oriented construction, everything should be considered at best the prototype for the next thing. Sure right yeah, even even the finished product. And in this case, after its history, uh, the Clunk or the Canuck was destined or supposedly destined to be replaced by the subject of our podcast today, the Avro-Canada CF-105 Arrow. Yeah, now
3: this is a Delta Wing interceptor aircraft, as you mentioned, and the, the purpose of this would be to um, intercept Soviet bombers. Because the, the threat at the time was that Soviet bombers were going to uh, you know f- fly across and enter uh, Canadian airspace and possibly come down into the United States through uh, that enormous you know vast region of Canada, all of Canada really uh, to our north and um, this is kind of like a, a another line of protection, I suppose you know they're going to fly out, intercept them and take them down. Uh, There's a few problems with that along the way, as we'll we'll find out. But um, some stuff changed along the way that made made a big difference in this whole story, really.
1: You're a growing
0: business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack slack is where work happens with all your people data and information in one ai powered place start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites or build an automation with workflow builder to take routine tasks off your plate no coding required grow your business in
1: slack visit slack.com to get started if you use paper you're a human but if you choose paper you're a papertarian
0: We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. My I sister. didn't know we were going to go there on, I'm this. Go there on
2: this,
1: this, is this.
0: People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in exactly. to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, right. which is different than empathy. Yeah. right? And basically have conversations
2: And this, this was a weird move on the Royal Canadian Air Force's part because they they began studies, design studies in as you said, the fifties and earlier, actually, uh, examining different improvements possible to make on the Canuck. Yeah. And then they kind of shamelanded it. They kind of did a M Night Shyamalan plot twist because they said, "You know what? We're going to go for a much more powerful design, and we're going to skip the prototype phase."
3: Oh yeah, that was a strange move too. I think is yeah. they were intending to instead of making this kind of one-off vehicle that was, uh, as you say, a prototype. You know, which where they the build, it in a, yeah, build it. Typical method. Yeah, building a lab. They're going to start with a a an assembly line, mm-hmm. and they're going to build the first one right on the assembly line, which makes it makes it even more difficult. There's a lot of other things that were. Uh, incredibly difficult along the way that, that upped the cost of these because the initial thought was that they were going to build something like 600 of these planes. Right. That was the initial plan. And the, the cost per vehicle was going to be something like $2 million. Uh, the uh, Canadian Royal Air Force decided that they didn't want the fire control system, the, the missile system, you know, the weapons and guidance system that was at the time working in other planes. They wanted this to be unique for the, for the arrow. For right. the Aero project, and that added on to that cost, and it kept adding on and adding on mm-hmm. until we got to the point where, um, you know, finally, uh, the government reduced the number of planes that they wanted from six hundred down to one hundred, and you know, the the add on of uh, you know this this R and D really of all those uh, missile and guidance systems, all those and new and systems, yeah, everything yeah. that had to be added on to this, it just up the price to something like they were they were approaching twelve million dollars per plane at this point, and you know, wow. For the for the run of one hundred, which factor in the R and D exactly right, yeah. So um, and again, the year that we're talking about here, this is early nineteen fifties,
2: right? Okay, so the Mark One is rolled out in, so they're they're seriously developing it in the mid fifties, as you say. The Mark One RL two hundred one goes out to the public in October of nineteen fifty seven, specifically October fourth. Of 1957, an auspicious day in another country as well. Yeah, this is uh, this is critical
3: here because what's happening over in the Soviet Union is that they launched Sputnik, uh, the, the satellite. Sputnik. Now that's the so so. In other words, they they roll out this plane, you know, to the public, and yeah. and it, it's really it's pretty amazing. It's an incredible plane, but the. The Sputnik uh, um, headline, I guess, grabbed all the attention away from that, and and it really kind of fizzled on that day, and that's that's too bad. It was just that's that's the worst timing ever for something like that to happen. Ooh. If it was a day later, a week later, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, would have made a big difference. Now Sputnik, I think we should just mention this because this plays into this this whole Cold War thing. Yeah, immensely. yeah, immensely. Yeah. Now uh, it's it's the world's first, and this is why it was news. A lot of people won't remember this or weren't around or just have never looked it up um it was the world's first artificial satellite and it only had a 92 day mission and really it was pretty simple what it did it just it just sent a, a radio signal back to earth and it was just kind of like it, it took it did take um uh um some measurements i guess because you could you could determine uh the drag on the outside of the uh, of Sputnik which was right. like a
2: it didn't have scientific
3: instruments no but they could calculate Uh, certain things about the upper atmosphere. Yeah, and the
2: ionosphere based on the radio signals.
3: Yeah, the radio signal speed of those, and they knew how fast it should be flying, and and they could calculate drag and all that. And it was 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 interesting. It was launched, um, again, by the Soviet Union on October fourth, 1957, and it came back to Earth. Uh, it fell to Earth on January 4th, 1958, but it burned up on reentry. I mean, it didn't make it back.
2: I think there's this is fun for. Uh, I know this is a derailment, Scott. And I apologize half heartedly. Oh, right. But <laughs> if you happen to find yourself at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, you can see the last remaining piece of the of, of Sputnik of the first Sputnik what's uh, what's the last remaining piece? Oh uh, it's sad man it's a, it's a metal arming key and all its entire job of this little component which looks like two key rings and sort of a, a razor blade shaped bracket yeah hanging there the entire job was to prevent contact between the batteries and the transmitter before launch that was it It's the only thing it did.
3: It's like just a a protective plate,
2: really. Right, yeah. That's it. So the batteries and transmitters aren't in contact. And it's a piece that was removed before launch,
3: so that's the only reason it's still here. Weird, huh? All right. History. Yeah, I guess. Now, now why it's important, why this is so important to the story also is that... The whole launch of, of of Sputnik really triggered what the American well, I guess the Americans called it the American Sputnik crisis uh, or um, the space race. Yeah, the, the space race. Yeah, because it, there was this perception that the the Soviet Union was was technologically far more advanced than the United States at this point, and that was uh, mm-hmm. that was a great fear of of, of ours. You sure, know a say? defense gap. Well, exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's a big problem. So the the space race then led to the creation of NASA in 1958, and uh, that that actually you know what. NASA wasn't the first group that, that did something like that. There was a, a group prior to that that was formed in 1915 called NACA, N-A-C-A. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. And that is what, in turn, formed in or changed into uh, NASA in 1958. So that's the, uh, the the group that predates
2: that. But And Canada, um, being part of the West, was part of this race as well. So this international pressure... In competition, this concern of the Cold War of fingers inches away from the big red button that says nuke. This this concern really drove the economics of the time. And so as soon as the R L two O one rolls out, it's extensively tested and they're they're finding the, the uh, testers, the scientists, the evaluators are finding that this far outperforms the clunk it's got better handling and it's more reliable in numerous ways and then they begin replacing some of the engines because uh they had the rl 202 and through 204 come out and those were using uh pratt and whitney j75 engines Mm -hmm. which are uh a turbojet engine that was popular in the 50s. However, that was not quite the ideal engine at the time, and that's when they stumbled upon... Yeah, the Arenda-Iroquois engine, right? So we, we finally got around to it. We remembered the uh, the Iroquois
3: thing, mm-hmm. for, for you know, Noel's nickname. Look at that, man. Look Amazing. at us. I know. I, it's, it's been a long time. I'm
2: surprised we didn't forget. We are moving on up, <laughs> Mr. Benjamin.
3: All right. So the Orenda-Iroquois engine was right. built by Orenda Engines, which was a, um, uh, it's actually a part of the Avro-Canada group, so it's a, it's like a division, another subsidiary Like of Avro-Canada. Like you said
2: earlier, it's an in-house design.
3: Yeah, exactly. They, they designed it, they built it, and it was specifically for the Arrow. and um, they, they did testing, you know, like they were ready to do... I guess getting it ready for flight and, and testing, uh, but never quite actually made it. I think maybe they had installed them. Uh, you know, there's some weirdness that happens with planes left on the line in a moment that we'll talk about, but uh-huh. um, I, I don't know if it ever actually flew with one of those Iroquois engines or not. Not sure.
2: Mm-hmm. But that was the intent, at least.
3: Yeah, it was getting it was getting ready for taxiing and testing and stuff like that. So um, it was it was on its way. Um, ben, you know, before we go too much farther here, can I just take just a, just a moment to mention something that's been kind of uh, kind of bugging me here? Oh, no, please, that do. we haven't said. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it seems to me that the Canadian aviation industry was really really strong at mm-hmm. this point, very yeah. very strong. I mean, aerospace, anything anything around aviation was very very strong in Canada, and and that's not typically where we, we don't think of that you know them as being strong in that industry today and the reason is because of what we're going to talk about soon here but um, it, it's generally thought that um, boy I, maybe I'm giving, giving it all away here but I think we've already said that you know they shut it down right so that's the that's the truth I mean should I should I just let's just get the badger out right, of so the bag it is shut down but there's kind of like this big what if question that's left out there like ah, yes. and, and here's how strong it was in Canada at the time they said that if the company had been left alone to kind of create and develop these new technologies like, you know, that, that they thought they were going to do, this, this Avro group, Canada very likely would have put a man on the moon, which is kind of crazy for me to
2: to, to think about. It sounds really. crazy, but let's consider, let's walk through it, because at this, at the time um, when, what, in 19, March 25th, 1958, the first test flight of Aero yeah. they already found that it was amazing for the time. It could reach nearly three times the speed of sound. It could uh, travel an altitude of sixty thousand feet, and this this became a, a symbol of unity to uh, Canadian uh, to the Canadian population. Well, sure, national
3: pride, right? right. I mean, it's uh, this is a. a, a- a, like the crowning jewel of their of their uh, their whole group at this point, you know. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's not the best way to say that, but uh, it, it's something that all of them can stand behind and say, hey, "We Canadians built this," and, it, and it's right now. It's right at the top. It's it's something that uh, it, that um, not many people are doing. Not it's many a, countries are doing.
2: Yeah, it. it's a flagship. It's a flagship yeah. plane. It's a crown in the jewel of Canada's aerospace industry. That that that's a better way to say it. That comment, uh, the man on the moon statement. I heard, the, I heard that from um, the CEO of the Canadian Air and Space Museum, oh, okay, Rob Cohen. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's an interesting proposition because they were on the forefront yeah. of such technology at the time. Yeah, and
3: what's interesting is that Avro had a couple of other concepts that were kind of on the drawing board when right. all this went down, too, and I promise we'll get to the shutdown in just a moment here, but... Um, they had a lunar rover concept vehicle that they they were already really? testing they had a a flying saucer car which was uh, kind of, they called the astro car or i'm sorry avro car uh, but it looks like a flying saucer on the ground it's kind of right. an interesting idea i don't know exactly what the deal was with that but um they were they were constantly developing and and um you know looking to what's new what's next uh, in in canada and spe- uh, specifically this avro group it was an enormous place i mean it had Tens of thousands of employees. It was a giant, giant industry at the time in Canada, and not just them. There's other, you know, uh, Canadian aviation industry players as well. Right. It's just this is the one we're focusing on for for this whole thing. And a lot of the, um, uh, I don't know, can you call it the brain trust? I guess a lot of the brain trust in that in that industry in Canada was working for Avro at the time. That's why what happened on February twentieth, nineteen fifty nine, was such a just a horrific blow to uh, again national pride uh, mm-hmm. to. Uh, Canada in general, really. I mean, people to this day are very, very angry about what happened in 1959, early, early Black 1959. Black Fr- Friday, yeah, Black Friday. Yeah, they they actually call it Black Friday in the uh, in the Canadian aviation community uh, because of exactly what happened. This is the cancellation of the project, and people still argue about why it was canceled. Ah, uh, that's that, okay. There's a lot of uh, there's conspiracy theories, of course. Sure. Um, I we can tell you kind of the uh, the generally. Understood, you know the consensus, I guess, of you know why why it happened, Um, and mainly it comes down. The the general idea is that it mainly came down to cost. The aircraft was getting too expensive, um, even though a lot of the fault of that was, you know, partially from uh, the Royal Canadian Air Force who wanted you know those extra systems that uh, they could have just. changed or adopted from other vehicles that were already out there that had them. Yeah, Uh, They insisted on brand new,
2: though. Right. The official story is that the government uh, at the time said that, look, the aero program is just too expensive. It's not worth the money. It's costing us millions. Yeah.
3: And then, of course, other people would say, well, they killed it because they wanted to use the money for other projects that Mm -hmm. they had going that uh, that weren't maybe as important um, in their mind. Uh, The timing was a little bit different, too, because, uh, you know... one thing that they said it was it was bad timing was because the Soviets had already tested a um, um, an intercontinental ballistic missile an ICBM yeah and that, that then it, what happens then is that kind of cancels out the need to have an interceptor that can intercept a Soviet bomber because the bomber is no longer necessary they can just simply shoot a missile that, over that can reach Canada the shores of Canada or the United States. From the Soviet Union, so uh-huh. the, no need to intercept bombers anymore, so we don 't need to work on this interceptor project anymore that's that's one reason that's one of the bad many bad times here's episodes. another
2: yeah here's another reason uh, that I think is fairly solid around this time NORAD is created too, and one of the deals with NORAD, one of the standing agreements was that Uncle Sam would buy some new Avro arrows. however, in the course of negotiations. Uh, at some point the. US said they, they didn't want to you know they pulled out of the deal well, okay, or here's... the or the changing Canadian government at the time pulled them out of the deal. Okay, so
3: this vehicle that they're working on, the, the arrow. Is claimed or, or is said to be the most advanced military aircraft in the world at the time, right? Right. That's, that was the the, uh, uh, the the promotional stuff. You know, they, like you know what they say when they uh, go out with their PowerPoint presentation or whatever. Not, not that they had PowerPoint in 1958, but <laughs> you know what I mean. When they right. go out to, to present this, they say it's the most advanced military aircraft in the world at this point. Now, the problem with that statement is that there, there's this this, this this another aircraft that is very very similar that was already out there four years prior to that. It's right. the it's the one I mentioned earlier, the Convair F one hundred and six Delta Dart. And now I'm no expert in this, but I can go by what you know I've seen written about this vehicle, and or this aircraft rather. Uh, and they say that it was just as fast. It was somewhere around Mach two point three. I think was the top end of it. And uh, I think you said that it was they were promising that the arrow was going to be somewhere around three times the speed of sound. Right. Okay. So that's a little bit faster. But then I only saw numbers that went up to like just slightly below Mach 2 on the Arrow, but that was, again, that's prototype testing. Right. So, again, this this, this Convair F-106, um, it has a, a slightly higher uh, service ceiling, which means it can fly a little bit higher, almost twice the radius of action, which means that it can fly twice the distance, really. It wasn't yeah. quite as thirsty as the Arrow was. Um, it was also available four years earlier, as I said, and several times cheaper than, than the CF-105 eventually became after all those add-ons. So you know when when it was in the eight to ten million dollar range, the F-106 was still right around two million dollars, and they were actually building, them. they were flying, they were the the real deal at the time. Right now, the F-106 was kind of like the United States Air Force, um, uh, kind of like their their workhorse. They they used that all the time. I mean, it was something that uh, it's like their backbone, I guess. Mm. Um, they used it as an interceptor. It was an all weather interceptor, and it was later replaced by the F-15 Eagle, but for that time, though, I mean, there's here's an aircraft that's already there doing what they're trying to create the Arrow to do, and I know that that's that's one of the what I just mentioned. All this about the uh, the conveyor, yeah, that will get some people very very angry, and they'll say well, that's that, that you can't compare these two, and here's the reason, and I and I'm saying this because I don't want to get the angry emails. <laughs> the problem with the comparison that's being made between the F 106 and the, and the, uh, you know, well, the unbuilt, I guess, CF 105s was that they were comparing the prototype Arrow to the finished product, you know, in the con, in the conveyor. That's a really so, good point. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an excellent point because, you know, with the Iroquois engines that we mentioned, they hadn't even had a chance to really use those yet. I mean, they're still, we're still talking about the specs that were given for the, um, uh, the Pratt Whitney J 75s. And you know other things like that. They, they, it was not a finished product. They were still developing this along the way. When uh, other people were saying, "Well, they've already got a plane that will do exactly this," they were going to make one that was going to be better, is the idea. Right. That was the plan. But then, of course, 1959 happens, and uh, you know, well, early 1959 happens, and man, is this a blow to the uh, to the
2: aviation industry. Fifteen thousand jobs lost. Unbelievable! Like overnight, they just
3: uh, they just cancel it. They have to they have to can. 15,000 AV row employees. They're, they're fire, you know, and all the divisions and everything. Again, they call Black Friday for good reason. I, I get it. It has been horrible for, for um, you know, political, uh, not political, rather, but uh, um, yeah. national pride. Um, the they, they say that the aerospace, you know, the, the aircraft and aerospace industry in Canada has never quite been the same since that day in 1959. And I believe it because... What happened was a lot of scientists and engineers fled from Canada to the United States, you know, for jobs. They came over for, um, you know, to work for NASA. And if you bear with me for just one second, I've got a note about that because I think uh, the number was something like 32 of like the top-notch engineers and designers came to work for NASA. Wow. So or eventually your, made their way to NASA. You lose your team. Huh? Yeah, I mean, and. I'm sure that, you know, there were many, many other people, but that was like the top tier of, of, you know, the ones that were working on that. And Canadians saw this as kind of a, um, as a brain drain, you know, that, uh, yeah. you know, the, the, uh, the best of the best of their industry were, were headed to the United States to work on, you know, the new NASA group. And, uh, and they felt like, well, we just, we just missed the boat on this. This is, this is why they said, and you know, back to the what if thing. Um, right. you know, there's a lot of what if questions that are that are asked about this. That if they if they had let the company be, left it alone, uh, you know, let the, the program continue and let them develop as they had been over the past, you know, decade or so or even more, uh that yeah, there's a chance that Canada would have put a man on the moon. It's it's so crazy to think about. Yeah, that's what that's where that all comes from. You know, that's that's why they're so bitter about this. And I, I get it, I really do. I understand what they're I understand the angst there.
2: And ever since, uh, Canada has been using foreign combat aircraft. It's interesting because a group of industry and business leaders based in Canada launched a move to resurrect the Avro Aero program. Did you hear about that? No, I did not. That's interesting. It's interesting, but they, they just pitched a redesign of it um, in, back in 2012 or so as an alternative to uh, purchasing F-35s. Okay,
3: well, here's the, the the problem with resurrecting this program is is that You'd be going with uh, blueprints and all that because there's not an entire aircraft that was left alone. And that's part of the the, the mystery around this whole thing, right? Right. Uh, once the program was canceled, within I think it was within two months, the government just uh, ordered all of the materials on uh, you know the assembly line, every finished um, uh, plane or nearly finished plane had to be disassembled and destroyed. So there're bits and pieces here and there and this is uh because uh, they built 5 and apparently there was a 6th one that was almost ready. Yeah, it was very very close to being ready and you know all all in various stages of completion so you know all of them had a little something wrong with them you know because they're right. prototypes right. At this point I think they did they did fly one as we mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh actually a few of them have, have flown at some point all for the same the same pilot and we have a mystery too. Yeah, this myth, <laughs> I like this. It's kind of a legend, right? Yeah. Because all these, um, I'll just give you the, the lay of the land right now, is that there are pieces of these planes around. They're they're on display in aviation museums here and there. I mean, they're scattered here and there. And in uh-huh. some places, like, there'll be, um, and one of these Iroquois engines will be kind of, like, pushed away in a corner and maybe covered up with a tarp somewhere in a, in a, in a hangar. Um, pieces that were, actually, they, they were kind of stolen. They were smuggled out of that factory because everything was supposed to be destroyed. So anything you see of an Avro arrow is something that was smuggled out, including that giant nose piece that's on display in one of the, one of the aviation museums. I mean, it's like the whole front end of the plane. They snuck it out under the cover of night. I guess maybe in a, maybe it was from the shadow factory, Ben.
2: Maybe it was from the shadow factory. (laughs) No, no, they stole it.
3: They, they actually, they, they stole it because they wanted a piece of that, um, piece of that history, uh, to remain preserved, even though the program was gone. And here's how, here's how weird this gets is that, they asked some of the like the officials later on. You know the uh, the Royal Canadian um, um, Air Force officials that they came out to, to. This is much much later, by the way. Right? Came out to view a piece that uh, you know someone had uh, I guess smuggled away, and they kind of wanted to know what they could do with it or what they should do with it. And the guy said, you know what, just keep it back here under wraps until the climate is uh, significantly changed in Ottawa. And that way, we can uh, we can then bring it out and display it with uh, without having any kind of repercussions. And I don't know oh. when that happened exactly. You know, if it was right, it must have been a lot closer to 1959 than it is now because that yeah. stuff's you know openly displayed at this point. But again, all that all those
2: pieces, bits and pieces, there are um, uh, well, kind of, I guess, a stolen property, really. Right. And there was a great story in 2011 from CTV News where uh, I'll just read the first part. The discovery of an intact ejection seat from Canada's legendary Avro Arrow is fueling a half-century-old conspiracy theory that one of the purportedly destroyed jets was smuggled to safety. A full jet. A full jet. Yeah. So a working Arrow is
3: said to be out there somewhere.
2: See, guys, did you know that we were going to bring that vehicle theft stuff back around? <laughs> I knew you'd do it. Forget stealing sports cars from Buckhead. <laughs> Steel jets from Canada. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's it's so
3: much easier. You ever see, um, what is it? Airplane Repo? Is that the name of it? Airplane
2: Repo. Yeah, have you ever seen that show? Oh, wait. Is that the show you told me about? I thought you were joking, where they go and take, uh, the private. Planes of yeah, the people that have really uh, well-to-do.
3: Well, yeah, someone who has uh, you know stopped making payments on their plane, or you know there's a dispute over who owns it or whatever, and uh, it's like a repo man, but they they take airplanes and they do it. Okay, here we go again under the cover of night. Sometimes right. they, uh, they they do this, and and crazy thing is they got to go into these hangars like that are guarded. Of course, they've got dogs, they've got barbed wire, they've got all this, and and they they sneak in. They have to inspect the plane. They have to do pretty much like the, the ground inspection with a flashlight in a in a hangar that you know they can't turn the lights on in. Uh, they have to practically bribe somebody to to drive, or they do it themselves, where they uh, have a, a tug that pulls them out to the to the uh, to the runway, yeah. and then they take off. And it's it's the craziest thing. Like sometimes they're they're taking off as the owner is arriving, you know, shaking his or her fist at them. It's a crazy show. It's a, it's actually pretty good. It's it's not it's maybe not what you're initially would thinking. You it do would do airport? Airport repo, airplane repo. If, if I could fly I would. It looks like fun, but it also looks very dangerous. It looks very, very dangerous. I mean anytime you're you're taking something that someone feels is, is their property, even though they've stopped paying on it you know many months ago. Right. Or even
2: years ago. Yeah. Because a lot of times it's just a matter of tracking these things down. We had um, um, that's that's dangerous business. A while back, gosh, years back, we had, we got some great and kind of gritty stories from a guy who was working as a repo man. We and, did a repo
3: uh, truck episode, and maybe that's yeah. what spawned that. Yeah. Could have been, yeah. Hey, and you know, one last quick thing is that yeah. um, what kind of added a little bit of fuel to this whole fire is, a, is an interview that was done um, in 1968 by a guy, I think he's an air marshal, and World War One flying ace. World War I flying ace. Wow. Well, that's a
2: long-gone way back. I mean, especially when you consider the rate of attrition for it, pilots in World War I. Yeah, he was a, he's an
3: air marshal, and he his name was uh, Wilford Austin Curtis, and... They asked him, just point blank, do you have one? Did you did you hide one? Because they think that this is the guy that did it. They think this is the guy that <laughs> took it. Yeah. And so in kind of a dodgy answer, he says, uh, he, he kind of says like, well, I, I don't know if uh, the political climate would be right to uh, to reveal that kind of information at this point or something like that. He, wow. He, something like that. It was like a real dodgy answer to the, to the question. Yeah. that was very direct. And again, that was in
2: 1968. So I don't know. It, it's still, it just adds... Fuel to this legend, that, I can. You know, add it's to, still out there. Yeah, I can add as well. Uh, so earlier, that story about the injection, uh, the ejection seat, not mm-hmm. injection seat, the, something totally different. <laughs> that would be totally different. Well, the story involves a guy named Chris Wilson, who at the time was the managing director of a place called Jet Art Aviation. It's a British company that sells aircraft collectibles, and he believes in this theory that the Avro escaped from Canada. But also, apparently, ex Royal Air Force members—that's British Air Force, essentially—say that the existence of an arrow in the UK was a local legend within the force. Really, during the
3: 1960s. So, lending a little bit of credibility in that, you know, these are the guys on the inside that are mm-hmm. saying somewhere there is one. We we know it. Maybe maybe they've seen it. Maybe they, maybe they know exactly where it is.
2: Apparently, eyewitnesses traced it to uh the RAF Manston Air Base near Kent but there is no hard proof of that
3: mm, interesting this is a, i like it when we have a like one missing type story you know like where... um uh, you know, someone builds a bunch of cars and they put them in a showroom and they just disappear one day. And you know, like the three, right. what was it? The the high vehicles that we talked about that just disappeared. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You know there's a, a ton Somebody of these along took the way. Them on
2: the best last day of work ever. <laughs> That's what happened. But also, you know, again, folks, and uh, especially you, uh, Kelly, the idea that one of these could be smuggled out is enormously controversial, and a lot of people just flat out. Do not believe it, including one of a guy named Robin Seip, who is one of the only owners of an engine made for the Avro Aero. Oh,
3: really? That may have been the one that I saw then that was kind of uh, in, just tucked away in some aircraft hangar somewhere. It didn't look like it was on display anywhere, really. Uh-huh. Uh, maybe that's the one I, I've seen. But uh, you know what? What I find most interesting about this, I guess, is like the the aftermath of the whole thing. I mean, uh Canadians of course really really angry about this and and for good reasons as we said um people are talking about how you know the prime minister at the time um what's his name Diff- Diffenbacher, I think Diffenbacker I can't I don't know how to pronounce his name but um they think that you know th- at the time they said that it's going to turn out to be one of the most colossal blunders that have ever been made by a prime minister in the history of Canada you know it was like a a wow. huge statement like that like it's the worst thing that could ever happen but uh, the again the, cool. con- the conventional thought is that it made sense to cancel the program because it was just getting too expensive. It wasn't uh, wasn't the right thing for Canada at the time. You know, the, all these factors that we've been telling you about the timing and you know the, the bad just bad bad timing. Um, it all added up to um, you know the the program just not really having much of a future, I guess. And and I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, we're going to get opinions probably both ways on this thing because people get very very. Um, yeah. Upset about this. This is a polarizing topic for sure. Um, the other thing is that for Canadians, they they saw the cancellation of this as kind of like a, a blow to again, like their national dream. You know, their uh, their national pride. Uh, um, they saw it like here's the way it was said in one article. They said that they saw it in, in a way that their leaders did not have the courage or the vision to forge a coherent defense uh, policy independent of the United States. Meaning they had to rely again on the United States for, um, you know, defense and, and they didn't want that. That was what, that's part of what this whole program yeah. is about. And, and again, just, you know, fostering that creative atmosphere that, uh, um, that, that Avro had really, they had that, they had that mentality. They had that group of people there that could have done a lot and just never got the chance. So
2: the what ifs of this, of this whole thing are probably the most intriguing part for me. And what do you think, Canadian listeners, uh, was the Arrow shut down for worthwhile purposes or was there something more to the story? Because I had heard people arguing that the U.S. was purposefully crippling Canada from an aerospace That's perspective. An interesting uh, twist on the whole thing. I mean, there's there's a lot of
3: things like that. You could read, You could read a lot into this. You know, going back and looking at the situation. So, yeah, I I would love to hear some of the, uh, maybe some of the lesser-known conspiracy theories about this whole thing.
2: Right, yeah, and we also like to know if you think there might still be an Avro Arrow out there in the wild somewhere. Talk about the most amazing barn find. That would be incredible. and you can write to us regarding this. We're on Facebook and Twitter. We're CarStuffHSW on both of those. If you want to check out our earlier podcast, especially the U-Haul one we mentioned earlier, then uh, please visit our website, CarStuffShow.com, where you can find every single audio podcast we have ever done. You could go to iTunes as well if you wish, uh, but I think they only show the first three hundred. Yeah, I think, it's, and that's not even half. That's not even half anymore. Uh, we've been at it for a while, and if you would like to take a page from Kelly's book or Clayton's book and write into us with a recommendation for an additional topic, some thoughts on the Abro Arrow, or your brutally honest car reviews, we'd love to hear from you. Our address is carstuff at howstuffworks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com.
2: This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.
0: Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fairs. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.